Well, can I add my welcome to that already given? It's lovely to see you after the holidays. I haven't spoken to all of you. Can please come and tell me afterwards over coffee what you've been doing and I can tell you what I've been doing. If you're new to us, um, a special welcome to you. Uh, we're delighted to have you here, particularly the students from the college. Um, just to orientate you, uh, you might just like to take up the white bulletin and also the green handout. And you'll notice on the inside of the white bulletin, there is an outline which tells you where we're going in the next few minutes. And uh, it's our um, habit here at St Barnabas to make the weekly Bible study a focus on the passage uh, or the talk that is given on Sunday morning. And you'll find the questions that go with that on the green sheet. And uh, I'll say a bit more about that later in the service. But um, for now, please have your Bibles open and I'll ask the Lord to to help us. Well, Heavenly Father, it is indeed our joy to worship you together and to bring you the adoration of our hearts and the consecration of our lives. We thank you that you are our Father, that you know us through and through, and that your word is able first to find us, then to speak to us, and then to transform us. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, this book, John's Gospel, will come alive to our hearts and minds this morning. And so we say with one voice, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, John's Gospel is, without doubt, one of the most greatly loved books in the Bible. And I guess there are lots of different reasons for that. Um, at Christmas, the opening verses are read in literally thousands of churches around the world. And I guess, as a result... Lots of people who only go to church once a year are familiar with the language and they love the language. And I guess if your friends know only one verse in the whole of Holy Scripture, a strong candidate would be John 3.16. Uh, even the children in church in Sunday school can recite it from memory. John's Gospel is also full of comfort. Um, elderly Christians on their deathbed will ask for John's Gospel in preference to any other part of Scripture to be read out to them. The reformer, Martin Luther, was a huge fan. Uh, he said once that if some evil person should succeed in destroying the Holy Scriptures and only a single copy of Romans and John's Gospel remained... Christianity would be saved. That's a pretty impressive claim, isn't it? Now, those are all good reasons for the series that we're starting this morning. But the most important reason for preaching this book is the purpose that the author himself gives for writing it. 
You see, there's a very great deal that we don't know about John's Gospel. Uh, For a start, we don't know where the Gospel was written. Some writers believe that it was probably written in Ephesus, in modern Turkey, but we can't be sure. We don't know when it was written. Um, I think it was probably written towards the end of the first century in the early 90s. In other words, about 60 years after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. But again, we can't be sure. We don't know for whom it was written. I think it was probably written for Greek-speaking Jews. But we can't be sure. We don't even know from the text who actually wrote it. I'm absolutely convinced uh, that it was written by the Apostle John, but the text doesn't say that specifically. But of one thing we can be absolutely sure, and that is why this book was written. Because in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, the passage Jeremy read for us a moment ago, the author gives us a crystal clear statement of purpose. He says, this is why I've written this book. This is its purpose. This is what it's for. Listen to what he says. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, and now here it is, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I'm writing this book so that you might believe in Jesus as your saviour and have eternal life. What better reason, I ask you, could there be for looking at any part of the Bible? Now you may say to me, well hang on a moment Simon, I already believe these things. Well if that's you, I need to tell you that John is a genius with language. He often uses words and phrases that have a double meaning. And that phrase, that you may believe, could also be translated that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The experts don't all agree about that alternative translation, but we're not going to get into that this morning because throughout the history of the church, Christians have always understood that this book is not just for unbelievers. It is for them, of course, and I hope as many of them as possible will join us in our series. But John's Gospel is also for Christians. And if you're a Christian, John wants you to continue believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Not just a great teacher, not just a great moral example, not just somebody that you run to when life gets a bit bumpy and you need someone to sort out the mess. No. 
John wants you and me to continue believing that Jesus is the Son of God. God in human form. That is John's purpose. And if we continue believing that, we will have life in his name. Now this morning, I'm simply going to uh, introduce the book to you. God willing, we'll have two series, 12 sermons this term and 12 sermons in the first term next year if I'm still around, still alive. But I want you to be excited about this book. I want to give you enthusiasm about it this morning to fill you with great expectations of what God can do as we look at this part of his word together. I want you to be praying, Lord, as we come and hear the preaching of John's Gospel on Sunday mornings, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you're actually saying to us. And so this morning what I want to do is just try and answer one simple question. How can John's Gospel help us believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I'm going to stress four elements in particular. First, we're going to consider the source. The source. I want us to be thinking about the author of this book. Now, a moment ago I said that the writer is never named in the text, but we do know that he was an eyewitness. He was one of the people who were there at the time, who saw what happened, who heard what Jesus said. And so, you don't need to look it up, but chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. We've seen it. Or again in chapter 19, verse 35, as he's describing the the death of Jesus on the cross, he says, The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He's talking about himself. He knows that he tells the truth, says John, and he testifies so that you may believe. And the tradition of the church, and the early church in particular, is unanimous that the author of this book is John, the disciple, the son of Zebedee, one of the inner three amongst Jesus' group of disciples. Jesus, of course, loved all of his disciples. But there were three who were special. Peter, James and John. And there were times when Jesus separated them and took them with him for some special purpose. So, for example, it was these three that Jesus took to the Mount of Transfiguration. In the Gospel of Mark, we're told that Jesus took these three to be with him in his hour of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. But you know, it's it's a tremendous mark of John's humility that he never actually names himself. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He, He never writes his own name in this book. Instead, what he does is he describes himself in the most marvellous phrase. 
as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's all that John wants us to know about himself, that Jesus loved him. And that kind of humility, I think, is characteristic of all great men and women of faith. Uh, John Calvin, when he was dying, he said, I want to be buried in an unmarked grave. I don't want my name to be remembered. I want Christ to be remembered. And so here John describes himself simply as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And the night before he died in the upper room, John says that as they had their last meal together, the disciple lying next to Jesus was the disciple who Jesus loved. Chapter 13, verse 23. Then later Jesus is on the cross and he looks down at the disciple who he loves and he asks him to take care of his mother. And we read there that from that time on, this disciple, not John, he doesn't say John, but it's, it's him, this disciple took her into his home, chapter 19 and verse 27. Or again in chapter 20, the, the first person to look into the tomb is simply the disciple, but it's John. It's the way he describes himself. So this is the first reason why this gospel is either going to bring us to faith or strengthen us in faith. The source. It was written by an eyewitness. So these are not legends or myths or fairy stories. No, this is from somebody who was there who saw it, who heard everything, and who was our Lord's closest earthly friend. He had a bond closer to the Lord Jesus than any other human being. What better source could we possibly want to understand the Gospel? And he says about himself in chapter 21 and verse 24, This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down and we know that his testimony is true, the source. But secondly, what we have in this book are the signs. We read in chapter 20, the passage Jeremy read, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. In other words, John says what I'm doing is I'm giving you a selection. I'm only describing a few of the signs. There are are plenty more. And he goes on to say, but these are written so that you may believe. Now I think at this point it's, it's, it's crucial for us to understand something about the structure of John's Gospel. It's actually a very easy book to divide up. Uh, The first 18 verses are the introduction. Uh, They're kind of an executive summary of the whole thing. The last chapter, chapter 21, is a conclusion. And then the rest of the Gospel, everything in between, is divided into two. 
And the first half of the Gospel, from chapter 1, verse 19, to the end of chapter 12, has sometimes been called the Book of Signs. And there are seven signs recorded for us. And the fact that there are seven is highly significant because in Jewish thinking, the number seven signifies perfection. It signifies completeness. So John, in the first half of the Gospel, gives us seven signs. He's saying, I'm giving you a complete picture. I'm giving you perfect evidence. What are these seven signs? I'll mention them quickly. There's changing water into wine at a wedding. There's healing an official's son. There's healing an invalid at the pool of Bethesda. There's the feeding of the 5,000. There's walking on water. There's healing the man born blind. And there's the raising of Lazarus. Now these are the seven miracles or seven signs that John has recorded for us in the first half of the book. And John says that these signs are to help you believe or continue believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Now let's think about this word sign together for a moment. What is a sign? Well, a sign is something that points to a greater reality. It points beyond itself. So let's say that uh, you're on holiday (coughs) and you're travelling in a part of the country you've never visited before. Uh, You've booked your hotel. Uh, It's in a certain town, but it's getting late and you've been driving all day and you're completely lost. Uh, You're driving as fast as you dare but you're getting more and more anxious. And then suddenly, you see a sign. And the name of the town is on the sign. Now, now what do you do at that point? Do you you leap out of the car and say, Hooray! Uh, What a wonderful sign! Isn't that amazing? What beautiful colours! Look at that neat writing! No, of course you don't. Because... It's what the sign is pointing to that's important. That is the main thing. Or suppose that a friend of yours is injured and you know you've got to get them to a hospital as quickly as possible. And so you're driving around and you're looking for a hospital and suddenly you see a sign for the Constantinburg Mediclinic. Now do you at that point stop at the sign and drag your injured friend out of the car? and say, hooray, we've arrived at the sign, don't worry, you're soon going to be feeling lots better. Well, I hope you don't do that. Because the sign is pointing to what's really important. Now, I say this because it's a huge problem in the church today. People get very excited about signs. Signs and wonders. They're fascinated by the signs. They marvel at the signs, as if the signs are the great thing. Let me share a secret with you, my dear brothers and sisters. Signs are never, never 
the great thing. The great thing is what the sign is pointing to. And so as we work through the book, as we get to each of these signs, we're going to be asking, what is this pointing to? And in each case, the sign is telling us something special about who Jesus is. That's the big thing. That's what's really important. I mean, who is it who can feed a multitude with five loaves and two fish? Who is it that can walk in water on water in a storm? Who is it who can heal somebody who's been an invalid for 38 years? Who is it who can raise a man from the dead when he's already been in a tomb for four days? I mean, there's only one answer. Only God can do that. So these signs, you see, are the proof that we need in order to continue believing that Jesus is God. And we need the signs, you see, because... Jesus was also a human being like you and me. But no ordinary human being can do things like this. And so we need the evidence. We need the proof that Jesus is not only a human being, but that he's also God, with all of God's power and all of God's authority. And John says, with these seven signs you have all of the proof that you will ever need. So, you can commit your life to him with complete confidence that he is who he says he is and that he will be able to bring you safely into the life of the world to come. And friends, won't you please remember that Jesus did these signs in public. Many people saw them. Even his enemies had to admit that he had done them. So in chapter 11 and verse 47, his most bitter enemies say to each other, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. That's what his enemies had to say. This man does miracles. He does things that no other human being could possibly do. So that is the second reason for believing in Jesus in this Gospel. First of all, the source. This is an eyewitness account of Jesus' ministry written by his best friend. And secondly, the signs. We have these amazing miracles that Jesus does. But then thirdly, we have the sermons. Now John's Gospel is different from the other three, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, There's a great deal of material in the other three Gospels that we don't find in John. There is nothing in this Gospel about the birth of Jesus. He doesn't tell us anything about the baptism of the Jordan. He doesn't tell us anything about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. There's no record of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he doesn't tell us anything about the agony of Jesus 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. And many other details that we we read about elsewhere, you just don't find in John's Gospel. But John does include a great deal of material that we don't find elsewhere, and particularly Jesus' sermons, the preaching. You see, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, what we normally get is the teaching of Jesus reduced, compressed to short, pithy phrases. Um, Why do you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye when there's a beam in your own eye? Or, uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Short, pithy sayings. But one of the characteristics of John's Gospel is that he gives us lengthy sermons. Not just phrases, not just parables, but long and sometimes really rather complicated sermons. Uh, The experts call them discourses. We won't be using that word. Now, how many sermons do you think there are in John's Gospel? Have a wild guess. Hello? Seven. Correct. It's that same number, isn't it, of perfection and completeness. John says, look, I'm not going to give you every sermon, but I'm giving you a perfect record of what Jesus said about his identity. What are these sermons? I'll run through them very quickly. There's the sermon about being born again in chapter 3. There's a sermon about Jesus the living water in chapter 4. In chapter 5, there's a sermon on the relationship between the Father and the Son, followed by the bread of life in chapter 6. Then there's quite a long sermon about the light of the world, Jesus, the light of the world, chapter 7 and 8. And uh, then there's one of my favourites, the Good Shepherd, chapter 10, followed by a sermon about the oneness of the Lord Jesus with the Father. So friends, as we go through this book, you and I are going to share in the most marvellous privilege together. Because again and again, we are going to be listening to the greatest preacher who has ever lived. And as we study these chapters, we're going to hear the Lord Jesus preaching to us. These these amazing sermons. And that's just the first half of the Gospel. Because the second half of the Gospel, from chapters 13 through 20, is even more wonderful. Uh, That that part of the Gospel is called the Book of Glory. Book of Signs, the Book of Glory. And in the Book of Glory, uh, John records for us the, the personal ministry of Jesus to his disciples. In chapter 13, he meets with them in the upper room and he begins to teach them, to coach them. And in chapter 14, there is some of the most wonderful teaching in the entire Bible on the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 17, there's perhaps the greatest privilege of all because we get to listen to the Lord Jesus praying. It's his longest recorded prayer. And we get to listen to the saviour of the world 
pouring out his heart to the Father as he prepares to go to the cross. So here is a third reason why this gospel brings people to faith and enables Christians to continue believing in Jesus. Now I guess most of us have got family who aren't yet Christians. Certainly all of us have got friends who aren't yet believers. And I guess most of us have said to ourselves from time to time, if only we could find somebody who would explain the gospel to them and do it really, really, really well. Well, in this book, we have the Lord Jesus as our preacher, as our evangelist. Jesus explains the gospel. And if ever we can expect God to bless preaching, and he does, surely God will bless the preaching of the Son of God in our series. The source, the signs, the sermons, lastly, the Saviour. You see, at the heart of the Gospel, It's not John the disciple, the author. The heart of the gospel, it's not the seven signs and it's not even the seven sermons. It is a person. It is Jesus. And you see, we see him most clearly in what are known as the I am sayings. Uh, I am was the Old Testament name for God himself. Um, It's rendered by the word Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament section of our Bibles. But behind that, in the Hebrew, is the simple phrase, I am. And Jesus, you see, takes that name and he uses it of himself. And he gives us these marvellous I am sayings. How many I am sayings do you think there are in the Gospel of John? Well done. Seven I am sayings. And you see, what they're doing is they're giving us a complete and perfect picture of who Jesus is. Now, the precious thing about them is that there are two elements to each saying. There is a statement about his person and there is a promise of what he offers to us. So when you come across each of these sayings, think about the person, think about the promise. And each of these sayings is a direct appeal to you and I to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I'll mention them briefly so that you get the majesty of this. Chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That's the person. Now here's the promise. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now my dear friend, I need to say to you this morning that you are hungry for certain things in your life. All of you are. You're hungry for love, you're hungry for peace, you're hungry for meaning, 
You're hungry for fulfilment in your life. And Jesus says, if you believe in him, he will perfectly satisfy that hunger. The second saying is chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That is the person. Here's the promise. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, all of us, including myself, from time to time have thought, I'm walking in darkness. Um, I don't know where my life is going. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. And Jesus says, if you believe in him, he will take away the darkness and he will shed light into your life to show you who you are and why you're here and what your life is for. Third, chapter 10, verse 9. Jesus says, I am the gate. That's the person. Here's the promise. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Now it's a picture of a sheep. Um, It's lost, it's helpless, and there are ferocious wolves gathering around, just waiting to devour it. And it's a picture of you and me if we are not yet Christians. We're out there in the world. We're completely at the mercy of all the cruel forces of exploitation and hostility. People who want to hurt us and damage us and tear us down. What safety can we find? Jesus says, believe in me. And immediately the gate opens and the sheep is let in to the safety of the pen and given all the food and the nurture it could ever want. Number four, John 10 verse 11. I am the good shepherd. That's the person. The promise is implicit rather than explicit, but it's clear enough. Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Calvary. That's Calvary. And the promise is that if you put your trust in the good shepherd, then his death will be accepted by God as a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for all of your sins, past, present and future. Next, John 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. That's the person. Here's the promise. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What a promise. What a promise. The promise of everlasting life, of living forever. So that after you've spent your 70 or 80 years on this planet, and you think it's all over, 
it's actually just beginning. The sixth is John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here's the promise. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the promise there is you can have the God who created the heavens and the earth as your Father. That is the promise. You can come to him, you can know him, you can have all of his love and mercy poured out into your life, but there is only one way for that to happen, and that is by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, number seven, chapter 15, verse five. I am the vine. And here's the promise. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Do you want to live a useful life? Do you? You see, you can have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that amazing fruit that makes you an attractive person, somebody that other people want to be around. But you've got to be in the vine. So, here are these tremendous I am saying, seven of them, showing us the Saviour in all of his grace and all of his kindness and all of his mercy, all of his power. And you and I are being invited to come and put our trust in him because by believing we may have life in his name. As I close, can I just say this? The Gospel of John is the Gospel of decision. You see, in the Gospel of John, there is no neutral territory. There's no middle ground. Nobody remains neutral in John's Gospel. They either love him or they hate him. They either worship Jesus or they want to murder him. It's one or the other. And that's how it is today. And John calls us to trust Jesus. Let me tell you a very remarkable thing about this gospel. John never actually uses the word faith. Isn't that interesting? But he uses the verb for believe or believing nearly a hundred times. He never speaks about faith. He always talks about believing. In other words, he's interested in us doing it. He doesn't want you and I sitting around a table thinking about it, or talking about it, or simply studying faith as a topic. What can you tell me about faith? Instead, John asks his readers, he says, Have you believed? Are you believing this morning? Have you put your trust in Jesus? And are you proving your belief by a life of daily, detailed obedience to Jesus? Because anybody can say, I believe. The test is, am I obeying? Now, I may be speaking to somebody this morning 
and uh, you're not, you're not yet, perhaps, a believer in Jesus. But God, God has brought you here this morning, very specifically, so that you can start the journey of faith. And if that is you, then I have to say this is absolutely the ideal book in the Bible for you to be studying with us. Expose yourself to this gospel. Come here Sunday by Sunday. Listen to these messages. Think about what we're saying. But I guess most of you will say to me over coffee, well, hang on a moment, Simon. I'm already a believer. I've been a believer for 35 years. Does that mean this gospel has got nothing to say to you? No, it doesn't. I said right at the beginning that we all need to continue believing, to believe more deeply, more vividly, more transformingly. R.W. Dale was a minister of a previous generation and on one occasion he was sitting in his study writing his Easter sermon He'd already been a pastor for many, many years, and uh, he says this, quote, As I sat down to write, the thought of the risen Lord broke in upon me as it never had done before. I found myself saying, Jesus Christ is alive today, fully and completely alive. Can that really be true? living just as I am. And so I got up and walked about my study, repeating to myself, Christ is living. Christ is living. It was like a new discovery. I thought all along that I had believed it, and in a sense I had. But it was not until that moment that I felt absolutely sure about it. And I said, my people, my congregation shall know about it. And I shall preach about it again and again and again until they get it. Friends, you and I need more faith. We need a deeper belief. We need the Lord Jesus to be more real to us than when we walked into church this morning. Yes, we do believe, but we need to believe more. We want it to change us more. We want it to dominate our lives in 2019. And so may God, by these studies, bring some here this morning to everlasting life. And all of us to life more abundant so that we find ourselves saying with dear old Thomas my Lord and my God let's pray together thank you Lord Jesus for John the beloved disciple Thank you that he was faithful to you throughout a long life of preaching and witness. Thank you for giving us this gospel and for everything that it teaches us about you. And we pray that as we study this book together, 
that you will place in our hearts a longing to believe and to go on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing we may have life in his name. So take your glory in our lives, take your glory in this church, we pray, for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.